Well, good morning, and welcome to the, the last of uh, the 9.30 service before the um, all-age service. Uh, this, on these occasions, we are able to look at other, other matters sometimes and um, explore them, so uh, we'll be doing that this morning. And if you don't know me, I'm uh, Jonathan Fordry, and I'm a member of the congregation here. Uh, do you ever get uh, prayer requests, particularly or especially about uh, people who are sick or terminally ill? Um, and certainly, sadly, we had one this week. Um, and have you ever sent one? But how about prayer requests that uh, we want to send, but we never actually admit to? And here, here's an example. Uh, dear Lord, please let me have control over the 11.5 trillion worth of rare earths in southern and eastern Ukraine. Thank you, Vladimir. And P.S. He is indeed not too fussy about how many deaths it takes. Now that would be actually be quite funny if it wasn't so tragic. Um, and he's actually, I would say, not really even a prayer request. He's rather taken these matters into his own hands. So perhaps we may not be uh, leaders of a nation, but we, we could ask, what do we pray for in our little empire? But I, saw, I, I ask, I don't even know. Of course, this is the 930 congregation. We're, we're the nice, nice congregation. We, we don't have unpleasant prayer requests, do we? We don't do that. We're not like that. So these may seem shocking, but how, how about this one? Um, yeah, I get depressed every time, dear Lord, I think about my life with this husband you gave me. Is it really wrong for me to just to think about, you know, aggressive little terminal cancer or, or a little fatal car accident? Or this one. Dear Lord, you know, my finances are in a mess and mum is loaded. And let, let's face it, last time I spoke to her, she said she regretted the day that she'd given birth to me. And she's so frail now. Just a little terminal chest infection to knock her over the edge, please, Lord. Of course, uh, requests like these never get an answer from God. And, and we would never take things into, or even somebody else's life into our own hands, would we? And as we take a view to a kill in today's story, we're going to learn um, a little about uh, those people who did exactly that, took somebody else's life into their own hands. And we're going to leave a few questions unanswered because there's, there's quite a lot in this passage. Uh, but before we do that, shall we um, uh, bring our own prayer request to God? Dear Lord, we do help that you would help us to uh, pray that you'd help us to get to grips with this passage and to apply the lessons from it to our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to look at uh, taking things into our own hands through uh, the actions of the three characters in this passage. Saul, the young Amalekite, and David. And then we're going to ask ourselves, what does this tell us about Jesus? But to really understand this, we're going to need to get a little bit of backstory about each of them. So we'll start with Saul. And yes, he may have been dead at this point in the story. 
but in life, he really did have form for taking things into his own hands. Uh, he was anointed as king by Samuel, but soon things began to go very wrong. Uh, Saul was, uh, on one occasion, fighting with the Philistines, uh, and before a battle, uh, all the men were scattering in fear um, at the, the sight of the massive Philistine army. So he sought the Lord through himself, offering a sacrifice rather than waiting for Samuel to arrive, as he said he was going to do, to do that sacrifice. A weak leader capitulating before their followers. Uh, we haven't heard that recently, have we? Um, Samuel said to him, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you've not commanded, you've not kept what the Lord commanded. So sadly, Saul didn't finish at that point. We move on a little bit to chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. And Saul was charged by Samuel with totally destroying the Amalekites. Now, this was an Old Testament way of offering a sacrifice to God through the total destruction of people, things, or animals. And it spoke of judge, God's judgment and anger. And it's, this is the one thing, yeah, we'll, that's a, a, a several series, a, a several sermons on its own, that one. But we'll leave that to one side. So Saul went off and did it. However, he spared the best stuff because his men wanted to carry off all the lovely loot that they had plundered. Samuel, when he met up with Saul, tore him off several strips for this. And Saul tried to justify himself, said, but I did obey the Lord. And of course, that was true only in part. Saul again was afraid of his men and gave in to them. Samuel was having none of this, though, and again, he said, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And such was the rift at this point, was until the day Samuel died, he did not go and see Saul again. And many of you will know the story that unfolds in the following uh, few chapters. In 1 Samuel, David gets anointed to be king, not actually as king at that point, but to be king, David then slays Goliath, he becomes a national hero, and Saul's right-hand man. And then, of course, Saul becomes jealous, he tries to kill David, David flees into hiding and then into exile, he builds himself his own raiding militia, and he spares Saul's life on two occasions. And we come to the end of uh, 1 Samuel, and once more Saul faces a battle with the Philistines, but this time, without Samuel and without David. And his death is predicted. And finally, as Ben mentioned in Samuel 31, a critically injured Saul asked to be finished off and then commit suicide. So in life, Saul feared what would happen if he waited for the Lord's will. And in death, he did exactly the same. But you say, look, isn't it easy for us to, with all the distance of history, to be critical of Saul? 
I mean, how would we deal with things if we're facing enemies who are out to kill us? And dealing with people is never, never easy. And why destroy something that's just so beautiful and so useful? And how would we be in the last throes of terminal cancer or some incurable disease? Surely, we'd say, assisted suicide has some role, surely. But I suppose, really, don't we think that life's events should be in our hands, under our control, and don't we just really hate it when we find out that we're not the ones in control? So how do we uh, approach such a difficult situation? And I, th I think the thing we have to say is that however an attractive an option it may seem, suicide is never part of God's plan. He may allow us to get things to get really dark in our lives. And often, this is frankly down to our own doing. However, he has the one who's given us this precious gift of life. He is the one who will give us the strength to endure and possibly even grow in these dark places. And then in the end, he is actually the one to decide when to our life should end. And I think part of the arrogance of this age is that we think we know better than God and we ignore the fact that leaving this life only brings us to judgment before God and not into some oblivion or nothingness. Let's look, move on and look at the young Amalekite. And what do we learn from him? All we know about him from, is actually these three exchanges in this chapter. What's the first thing he does? He pays homage. David's the new king in town. Here is his big opportunity to be the first one to get in and pay his respects. Not real respect, but a means to ingratiate himself for some expected advantage. Again, something we see in the political world every day. But the question we ask, who do, to whom do we show deference? And what are our motives in doing so? Secondly, we have, what, um, how truthful is he being in his speech? From what he says, the crown in his hand, we can say with reasonable certainty that he was there at the very moment that Saul died. But did he finish Saul's life? And there are probably two views. First is, he's lying, embellishing to get what he hopes is extra reward for slaying David's enemy. Secondly, he's telling the truth. And in the confusion on the, of the battle on the hill, his act of putting Saul out of his misery just went unrecorded. And both credible, even after falling on his sword, Saul's life may have still lingered. Saul may actually have said everything that the young man reported. Saul was clearly desperate at that point to die. So all that may have been true. But it says in the passage that Saul's sword-bearer sword bearer, was sure he was dead before he himself killed himself. So probably, on balance, the general view is that the young man 
was likely to have been a close witness, even possibly talking to Saul, but not a killer. However, he did see a chance of reward by bringing good news along with the proof to David. So what might happen today? Well, first thing, the, probably the man would have been there with his phone getting a nice selfie, David, um, Saul's head in the, yeah, just so that everybody could see the best possible view. So that setting it up to look at like more than it actually was. And again, isn't that our temptation to make out everything we do to be that little bit more out there and a bit more important? Is there somebody that we want to impress because we think their respect is a particular advantage to us? Or maybe we've even turned ministry into an occasion to get power, influence, and control. However, we always have the option of telling the truth, whether our life depends on it or not. I think secondly, as we read this story, for, for most of us, we have to be grateful that we've never been put in the position of someone asking us to kill them. I mean, how would we react if we were to do this, even if by somebody in the last desperate gasps of life? Now, again, there are many voices today calling us to enable us to end life where there's no hope of recovery or there's no apparent quality of life. We hear cases of where devoted spouses have been begged by their husband or wife for help in dying. Now, while there is clearly a time to die, and sometimes we may prolong life longer than is really best for the person concerned, there is no place in God's plan either for us to help someone commit suicide. Now, the story moves on to David, and he responds in two ways. And the first is mourning, and the second is execution. Execution of the, of the young man. So what do we learn from each of these? Firstly, mourning. David is so overcome by the news of the death of Saul and Jonathan that he breaks off the interview with this young man to mourn their loss. He even goes on to write a, a lament. And you might ask why David responds with such intensity of grief to the news of the death of the man who'd spent the last few years trying to kill him. Yeah, if you ever thought the relationships with your family and friends was complicated, uh, they may actually have nothing on those of uh, Saul and Jonathan and David. Um, for all his many flaws, David recognized that Saul had still been the king that God had anointed over him. And for that, David owed him respect and obedience, even while not letting uh, Saul stop him from following the plan God had for him or uh, avoiding being killed by him. So, Effectively, David's first act as the new king was to organize the mourning for the old one. So, 
After a little while, once he is recomposed in verse 13, he resumes the interview with the young man. And it's either that evening or, the, or sometime later. Now, we should note that David actually had plenty of reasons to kill this uh, man. And uh, whereas most of us will never, well, are unlikely to have killed anyone, David had a long history. As a youth, he'd been killing lions and bears. His first public killing was of Goliath. And then the song soon became about the tens of thousands he had killed. So killing was routine for David. First reason, there's a long-standing family uh, feud. Amalek was the grandson of Esau back in Genesis 36. Uh, Esau was Jacob's brother, the one not chosen to be the father of the nation of Israel. Secondly, when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, uh, Amalek fought against the nation of Israel in the very vulnerable time that they were in the wilderness. And as a result, in Exodus 17, God said, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Not only that, but as it's verse 1 mentioned, David had just returned from striking down the Amalekites. Now, they'd taken off his wives as plunder, and David had, to, had had to go and rescue them. So he had very personal reasons for being murderously angry at all Amalekites. Now, Saul and Jonathan, as we've said already, were still precious to David. And here was the man who had casually, apparently, killed his anointed king. And David, I think you could say, David also recognized that anyone who kills a king could do it again or encourage others to do so. So self-preservation would have meant an example needed to be made. So we go on to the execution. Now, what was David's first question? Where do you come from? Well, he already knew he was an Amalekite. He already said he was an Amalekite. So why did, this seems a strange question to ask at this point. Where do you come from? But the answer lies in the change of status between the first and the second encounter. David had gone from warlord to the king of Israel. And the question now is to establish whether this man falls under David's jurisdiction. Had the answer been as an enemy fighting against Israel, then he would have been a prisoner of war. But his answer is the son of a sojourner, son of a foreigner. So he's saying, although as a foreigner and a Malachite, I'm born into your nation. Saying that, yeah, of foreign extraction, he was a citizen. And so David establishes clearly that he is under his jurisdiction. Now, David therefore expects him to know who his king is and to know that murdering the king is a capital offense. It's not an act of war undertaken at the command of a state, but it's a murder committed on a battlefield. And however you dress it up as a mercy killing. So, David's second act then, as king, is to be the judge in a trial of one accused of murdering his predecessor. And this is a key difference. Unlike Saul, unlike the Amalekite, David is not taking things into his own hands. 
He's not a warlord in this point now seeking to establish himself. He is there as God's king, as the, as the king God has appointed. The execution of the young man is not revenge for being a member of a particular racial group or revenge for a kidnapped wife or revenge for killing a friend or to discourage others from thinking similar thoughts. But he is uh, undertaking justice for committing a murder. And David is therefore fulfilling the role that God has set out for him. But I hear you say, hang on, you said earlier on the man was most likely innocent of blood and convicted on the basis of a false confession. However, the man was guilty because his claims showed that he was oblivious to the fact that as a citizen of the Israel he claimed to be, he should have seen how the death of Saul and the defeat of Israel brought dishonor to God and sadness to his people. He completely missed that. David saw through this facade of allegiance to the new king and dealt with him appropriately as a traitor to God and to his supposedly adopted king and people. So let's move on and think about what this tells us about Jesus. And when we're reading the Old Testament, it's always really helpful to consider what this story or what any story has to tell us about Jesus. And to do that, we need to consider how we interpret the Old Testament. Now, to me, the only way, the only way of looking at the Old Testament is that it is all about Jesus. Now, for cricket fans of Test Match Special, you'll know that if any of you listen to it, uh, any commentary from Jeff Foycott was very rarely about anything that was happening on the pitch and all about how great a player he was. You either love him as a, as a great or you loathe him as an egomaniacal narcissist who has to be at the center of everything. And actually the same is true with Jesus. He was either an egomaniacal narcissist to be loathed or he was who he said he was, the savior of all and the one who came to fulfill all the law and all the prophets, i.e. the whole Old Testament was about him. And I can recommend a very useful uh, sermon on this one, YouTube sermon on this one. And I know who I believe him to be, and I therefore who the Old Testament is about. So, coming on to that, in this story, David is held up, or, or very often we can hold him up, as an Old Testament type of Jesus. Jesus is now the perfect king and the perfect judge of his people, the church, as David was the imperfect king and the imperfect judge of his people, Israel. And what does it mean to us? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of, well, one very personal reaction to this, which is to say that I think this, we have to, it would be wise to be very wary of the death penalty in any human system of justice. As it may have been in this passage, it's clearly possible that convictions may be wrong. And let's face it, there's no coming back from the death penalty. 
However, the main reason to be wary is that Jesus himself displayed that amazing patience that God has with us about our sin. He stopped the stoning of a woman who could have been justifiably executed, and he forgave a killer just before he died. And it was reported recently, or at least a few years ago, that Rose West, notoriously uh, involved in multiple killings, has found God. Now, we don't know whether this is true, but as one commentator put it, the fact that God could forgive even a Rose West is both the scandal and the glory of the gospel. God has patience for justice, and it will come. But until it comes, there is always time for repentance. Second, if anything, it should reassure us that when we eventually stand before Jesus as judge, we will have, he will have all the facts at hand. There will be no ultimate miscarriages of justice. Everything we have done will be judged fairly. But make no mistake, whether we've only lied about murdering somebody or we actually, actually have, or we have only just thought about doing so, we will all fall short of the standard of perfection that is required to enter heaven. All our misdeeds will be sufficient to gain us eternal death, and an eternal death sentence. So the only way to escape, and to be sure, is that we are men and women after God's own heart. And that can only come through accepting the free and unconditional offer of salvation that Christ holds out to all those who believe on him. And Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Unless we know the Lord, our greatest fear should be conviction before the throne of Christ for the crime of turning our back on his saving love. If you've never given your life to Jesus, today is always the best day to take these things into your own hands and to ask it. And if you have, as many of us have, perhaps this should motivate us more to share with others the incredible privilege of knowing that our destiny is not eternal execution, but life with the perfect King.